You're listening to the Photographer's Story Podcast. I'm your host, Hark Najjar, and joining me is international photography business coach, Bernie Griffiths, as my co-host. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, today we have uh, Peter Eastway uh, joining us uh, on the podcast and alongside my uh, co-host, Bernie. Bernie, uh, why don't you give us a little introduction on Peter? Hey, Hark, we've got a very special moment happening in your life because this would be the first time you've been in the presence of photographer royalty. And you should be on your knees, Hark, at this moment because I already am. But a special, a special <laughs> guest today has more qualifications than you could ever dream of having in your lifetime. He's actually a you, real. You have nightmares, do you, Bernie? Is that the oh, problem? Sorry, <laughs> oh, sorry. That's Peter in the background. Uh, someone's taken the gag off, off him, but I just want to introduce everyone and, and, and all our listeners to someone very special. And it's Peter Eastway. And Peter has more letters after his name than the alphabet. I've just counted them. And uh, Peter, welcome to Photographer's Stories. Thank you, Bernie. Thank you, Hark. Welcome, Peter. And it, it, if, if you're one person we should pay homage to it's it's you and i i pay homage to you of, of knowing your background and by this time this episode is finished i'm sure that everyone will be on their knees bound before you no no i, I suggest everybody stays firmly agnostic <laughs> okay well that's great peter to introduce you i have to go through the whole list of uh, letters that are after your name so I, I've had a look through and I've, I've tried to decipher them, but maybe you can help. Uh, you are Peter Eastway, A-double-P-dot-L. What's that stand for? That's an accredited professional photographer. And then they put the L on the end for licentiate. And I don't know why that is, but basically I think is if you've been doing it for a long time, they, they figure that you've learned how to spell and you can handle four letters rather than just three. So you get this, this extra letter after your name. Okay, and you are a are you grand... Going, are you really going to go through all of this? Yes, I am. And you are a grandmaster? Yes, and... grandmaster is for someone who enters the awards for so many years because he never does any work, any good, but he just keeps on knocking away and eventually he gets enough points and they say, go away, here's a grandmaster, just go away and don't bother us. And how many grandmasters are there in Australia? Oh, I, think, I think there must be about 20 or so, maybe 30 now. There's a few more. There are a few you, more. You were about I, I, was, I was the first male grandmaster. Oh, okay. That's because Lynn Whitfield King was the first grandmaster. So I like to say I was the first male grandmaster. Okay. And you the, know, the, coming second is never any good, especially yeah. Lynn. She, you know, we, we're all, we always used to have competitions and she's always beating me and I get sick of it. So if I say I'm the first male grandmaster in Australia, then I've got a first. It's good, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, but you can't say you beat a woman. Well, I didn't. She beat me. She got there first. That's right. So, <laughs> so, and we're talking about AIPP, Australian Institute of Professional Photography accreditations here, but we can't yeah. get away from that and we can travel over to a, a small country next to us, New Zealand, and you're a fellow of the New Zealand Institute of Professional Photography. Yeah. Again, I think that was a case of going over and uh, doing a few workshops and lectures, and they said, how do we get rid of him now? So they gave me a gong and sent me on my way. I think they even paid for the air ticket. And you're also a fellow <clears throat> of the ARPP. That's, that's right. So I, I was at one stage um, a, the treasurer of the uh, AIPP, which is a good position. Like the president always has a lot of power. But if you're the treasurer, you, know, you can say, sorry, I don't agree with that idea. And you don't have enough money to do it anyway. And, and so you win. So treasurer is a very good position in an organization. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I won't go there, Peter. Uh, <laughs> anywhere near there. It was a long time ago. It's and all, um, you know, the, the um, statute of limitations is well and truly passed. So it, it's no oh, That's good because we know the IRPP went broke, but we, and you were the treasurer? No, <laughs> no, no, so, no. It was left in very good. Uh, left in good financial <laughs> hands. Yeah, left in very good financial ruin. Yeah, that, okay. Yep. So you're also an honorary fellow of the NZIPP. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I get a little bit lost there. I, I, I just, I suppose rather than doing this, I, I, I think that the AIPP and the NZIPP and also the other photography organisations around the world. I mean, the reason I'm speaking to you, Bernie, is because we met indirectly through the AIPP, and a lot of people go to these organisations and they think, well, you know, why should I join? What's in it for me? 
And I think that's the wrong approach because if you go in there and see what's there and how you can help, you just meet so many people. And I think that probably, if I look at my successes in life, one of the small successes, and yes, even you, Bernie, is knowing people like you that I've that yeah got the same passion, the same interest. Yeah. And that's what the AIPP has given to me. I mean, I, I put my hand up. I have certain skills. Yes, I was treasurer for a while. I was the chairman of the awards committee for a while. So I've, I've been in all the different areas. And that's that's why I've got those letters after my name, because they say, right, Pete's done his job. How do we get rid of him? Give him, you know, they give you a, a gong and send you on your way. And uh, you're in, that's why I'm in the retirement home at the moment with my Zimmer frame, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's good. So... Uh, I managed to get through all those letters, but I just wanted to introduce you. So our guest is Peter Eastway, who's a photographer, a publisher, an educator, a qualified accountant, an influencer, an adventurer, and is an Australian and an all-round great guy. And a vegetarian. For, and a vegetarian, thanks, for, <laughs> and doesn't drink alcohol much. Well, and and <laughs> welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. That was, can I, can I just congratulate you, Bernie, for giving me one of the most grueling and um, embarrassing introductions I've ever received on a podcast. Thank you. That was wonderful. I bless you, Peter. <laughs> that's, that's certainly our style, uh, Peter. So welcome. Uh, you're, in, you're in good hands. <laughs> Peter, I've, I've looked at a lot of your uh, work. Uh, uh, unfortunately for me, I've, this is the first time uh, was introduced to your work was through Bernie and uh, looking at you've been all around the, the globe. What are some of your most memorable locations that locations that you've traveled to? It's interesting. Uh, at least you didn't ask me what my most memorable one was, because that's, you know, people say, what's the best place you've ever been? And I always answer it's the next one. Um, I've been lucky to go down to Antarctica several times, the Arctic several times, um, and they're just, you know, they're, they're very exotic. But then we can go into the centre of Australia, uh, you know, Western Australia, the Northern Territory, those areas, and in their own way, they are every bit as exotic and wonderful. Yeah, you know, Iceland is fantastic because it's sort of like a, a landscape photographer's um, uh, uh, set on steroids. Bhutan, I'm just working on some photos at the moment from Bhutan, which is a little country north of India, south of China, hoping not to get swallowed up. And, you know, when you get there, it's just like stepping back in time. And I guess that's one of the advantages of being a photographer. And certainly what I, you know, part of what I do these days, uh, I was going to be a rich, fat publisher selling paper magazines. And then this little thing called Google and Facebook turned up. And so I'm, I, I'm doing different things than I thought I was going to be doing in retirement. But one of those things which I really love is going with other like-minded photographers and leading photo tours. And, you know, I, I, I go around and um, I try to help them take better photographs. I have a lot of great dad jokes, so they're always laughing. They have a good time and I get to see the world. And uh, it's, it's a, a fantastic uh, way to sort of uh, yeah, spend your life. I mean, the last 12 months, I haven't been doing any travel at all because of uh, COVID. I've got a, a couple of interesting stories I can give you there on the way back, if you like. But prior to that, I'd probably be out of the country, you know, three to four months of the year uh, doing workshops. And that was, that was you know, very enjoyable. Well, travel stories are always popular with our, uh, with our listeners. And uh, having gone through some of those uh, travel stories myself, I, I used to work in the mining sector. So I, just like yourself, I would be out at least three, four months a year traveling all around, all around the globe. And one of the things that always, uh, when we came back to the office is always telling some of these travel stories. What are, tell us one travel story that's sort of still sitting around and you come back and say, that was a doozy. I, I got to tell somebody about that story. So I'm going to well, just put you on the spot and just tell us. Yeah, one yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just, I'll just stay with the, I, I mentioned COVID before, so I'll make my life easy. So last March, so we're, uh, what are we, February 2021, so March 20, um, I had two voyages down to Antarctica, and at the end of the first voyage, we were in Ushuaia, down on the south of uh, South America, and we were just about to step on the ship, go back on for the second voyage, and the pandemic was announced, <clears throat> and I was talking to the managing director who happened to be over on the ship at the time of the company he said look you don't have to go if you're worried or whatever and I said to him look you know this pandemic you know what it, you know, we're going away for three weeks by the time I get back it'll all be over so it won't be a problem <laughs> so you just need to be careful if you listen to anything I say today about how intelligent I actually am because that <laughs> statement was probably not up on my uh, not, not not top of the list so anyway we, we took off and you know it was interesting if if we hadn't gone 
then the chances of getting back to Australia were not going to be easy because they were closing down the airports in a couple of days' time. And all of the planes, because you know, it's, a, it's a sort of a hub for people coming into to go to Antarctica and then on the way back. And so all of the flights out of Ushuaia were all booked. So the chances of actually getting the 200 passengers on, a, on the ship, uh, well, 100 passengers on the ship and then those crew as well, but getting a, us, well, a lot of us onto our plane and back to our destinations, that was going to be nigh on impossible. So we thought it was a pretty good idea to just jump on the ship. And we were also told that because although we're going down to Antarctica, we weren't actually leaving Argentine waters. And so the belief was that we'll always be able to come back. Well, <clears throat> not the case. Um, we were down in um, uh, um, in Antarctica. We had six or seven days down there, like two, two days to uh, voyage down, six or seven days. And on the last day, we all got called into the um, the, uh, the, uh, the lounge room and they said, oh, um, one of our passengers has come down with a fever. The whole ship was going into lockdown. So suddenly, I'm, you know, now I was, I'm sort of on the ship as a sort of a pseudo staff member because I go down, I'm one of the lecturers. And although I'm I, I wouldn't know one end of a ship from the, from the other. I'm, I'm there and I sort of help out. And so I was actually delivering meals to the passengers because they were all locked down. And obviously, how do you get the food there? So some of us had to move around. It was interesting, a friend of mine, he's a, a professor, and uh, he was also delivering meals. And a lot of the passengers thought, oh, I've never had a professor deal me, uh, deliver my meal to me before. Because we, we're going to set up Uber Eats when we come back here. We, we might call it Pete's Eats or something like that, and we'll see how we go. So anyway, uh, one day I felt a little bit funny and like they were doing the temperature test all this time. The doctor gave me the temperature test and I was fine. He said, but you don't look that good, do you? So then he did another test inside of my ear and he said, yes, you're 37.4. I think it was that. And he said, if you're over 37.2, you've got a fever, so you're into isolation. So bang, I was into isolation and I had about, uh, I suppose, 20 days, 14, 20 days, I forget now. I was in isolation in total for 30 odd days, but 14 of those was in Australia and 16 on board ship. So anyway, and I, I'm, I'm in a, a cabin. I don't have any, uh, I've got a porthole. It doesn't open um, and I had nothing to do, but I'm a photographer. So I had all of these photos I'd been taking um, taken on two amazing trips to Antarctica. And so I create, I process them through, I designed them into a photo book. The book is uh, at, at home. It, it's a beautiful big publication, very, very proud of it. And I look at those photos and I say, you know, I had 30 days isolation. I had uh, maybe uh, 15 days of fun and then 30 days of purgatory, but, but it was okay. Uh, and so I, I dealt with it, but that was, a, I guess the question is now when we're looking at travel going forwards, um, if I travel overseas, when I come back, will I have to do another two weeks, even though we're all vaccinated and everything? And that's not quite clear as we do this podcast. It's unknown how different countries are going to deal with that. So the travel going forwards, I'm not too sure, but I, I, I have had the coronavirus. So I've tested positive. I've survived. I, I, um, I feel relaxed about it, but I, you know, we, we lost uh, a crew member on the ship, which was very, very sad. And we had two passengers who were seriously ill for, uh, you know, they were in uh, ICU for um, four weeks, six weeks. And so again, it's, it's not something that we, um, I get, we need to be careful and I, and I get all of the care because if you get it, it's not a nice thing, but for 98% of us, um, we'll come out. Okay. You just got to hope you're not one of those 2%. That's uh, that. quite the experience that you had just on the ship. Cause there's, we're a bunch of different uh, cruise ship experiences where the, uh, the passengers experience similar stories. So I'm glad that, uh, every, at least yourself, um, after having contracted, uh, COVID that you, uh, uh, came through and um, uh, are, are well, and uh, it's, it's got to be quite the experience. It's got to change you somehow. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think in some ways, having had it and had it mildly and coming out the other way, I've possibly been a little bit insensitive to how, to, to how some people in the population are responding. You know, because I, I, I look at the statistics and I say, well, 98% of us are okay. But, you know, if you're one of those 2% or if one of your family is one of those 2%, it completely changes that dynamic. And so I, I, I'm always, I, I try to be careful about how I talk about it. Whereas, you know, personally I, I'm okay, Jack, but, but I get it. We, you know, we do need to be careful. 
I almost Pete, sounded sincere then, didn't I, Bernie? Yeah, it's you not did. Like me, you but there you we got go. a bit of bit of got a little bit off track. Uh, Peter, your first job. Uh, a lot of people started as wedding photographers. What about you? Well, I I, I put that down for you, um, Bernie. I don't know if it was actually my first job. I think possibly my first job was an advertising shoot I did for uh, an army um, campaign. But the first wedding job I had, I just wanted to say it was I was probably uh, seventeen or eighteen. Um, yeah, just, just oh, maybe 18, 19, just out of school. And um, the next door neighbor to a good friend of mine as a photographer needed a wedding photographer. So I went in and had a chat. They said, oh, we just want someone to run around and take candid photos. We don't want any lineups, nothing formal, just do the candid shots. And so I said, okay, I can do that. So I dutifully, dutifully turned up, did just candid photos, present, I got some great candid photos. I was very happy. And the first thing they said, where are all the formals? <laughs> Where are all the lineups? <laughs> and it was then that I learned at a very early age that just because a wedding client asks you, asks you for something or doesn't ask you for something doesn't mean that there's not an expectation that you should have provided it. So they were decidedly very unhappy. And that was my, uh, I think I've shot uh, Bernie, maybe 23 weddings in 40 years. And that's probably around about 22 too many. <laughs> well, well, you survive. Actually, I, I, I love shooting weddings when I'm there. I actually enjoy the process of shooting the wedding, of being involved with the people. Um, I find it very challenging. I think wedding photography is one of those, one of the hardest games that you can play, to, to be honest. And, and because I really worry about letting someone down, the reason I didn't become a wedding photographer, because it was in the days of film, I was never worried about getting the exposure wrong or anything like that. I was worried about the lab messing up the film and then me not... Going, having to go back to the client and say, we don't have anything, you know? And so I just, that was what worried me. And that's what kept me away from doing weddings more than anything else. I did a little bit of family portraiture. I, I did more the way of advertising commercial and corporate, et cetera. But yeah, you know, I, I, I enjoyed the domestic side of photography, but I was too worried about letting someone down to, I, I thought I'd much prefer Bernie to take the can for that and I'll let him shoot all the weddings. Yeah. And Peter, you made a note surfing. Are you an ex-professional surfer or something? <laughs> I wouldn't say uh, professional. It's funny. Uh, I, 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 um, I have been a very keen surfer. I'm still a, a, a occasional surfer. It's funny, as we talk, I was involved with the Queenscliff, uh, Queenscliff Beach Board Riders Club for many years. And uh, we've got a uh, Queenscliff over 60s um, competition coming up uh, for this year where all of us old guys are going back. And it's funny, I was emailing a mate of mine and I said, are you turning up for the QBC? And he said, well, yeah, I I'm coming down. He said, I don't know if I can still stand up or not, but I'll come down and see everyone. So I'm not quite too sure whether we'll be any good. But, but back when I started off, when I was at school, I loved surfing. And I wanted to take photographs of my friends. And so my first camera was a little Ricoh compact in a circular Perspex housing, which basically just the, the top screwed on with an O-ring and had a button and uh, you, you took photos. And that was all I photographed was my friend surfing. I couldn't understand why you would bother buying a camera to do anything else. I mean, what was the interest of photographing mountains or people? Yeah, you only used a camera to photograph surfing. So, so that was my start. And uh, you're, you're a, of an era, Peter, so you, you've met a lot of very well-known photographers. Uh, and as a photo magazine editor, you've come across a lot of people. Can you mention a few of them who you've had the privilege of actually talking to? Well, I, there's, there's Arnold Newman, who is you know, well-known as an American portrait photographer, and uh, I've, I've interviewed him a couple of times. Pete Turner, um, who was one of the older guys. I always wonder about Pete and uh, his, his um, livelihood. I, I, I think that he really lived being a photographer of the 60s and all that entailed. I mean, what was the movie? Blow Up, I think it was, which um, showed uh, the, uh, the uh, UK photography scene for, a, you know, if you're a well-known advertising photographer and how fantastic it was. Uh, so Pete was always interesting to talk to. Michael Kenner, who's still around, he's sort of, uh, I think he's a couple of years older than me, still shoots with the Hasselblad, just does the most beautiful black and white landscapes. And he, he's, he set up his life just to basically follow his art, his, his art of landscape photography. Uh, worked with Art Wolf on a, on a project. Um, and again, one of those photographers who's very, very well known, made a name for himself and just has this real passion for, for photography. Uh, and look, there, there are lots and lots of others you know, I, I, behind me. I, well, you, not, you can see we're doing a podcast. Yeah. But yeah, if I look through the magazines, I've been a, a magazine editor for you know, at least 30 years, well, must be close to 40 years now. 
And yeah, so every year I'm probably interviewing a dozen people whose work I love. And so that's that, that I think has given me a bit of a, an advantage as a photographer because I've had so many different influences. And this, you know, I come back, I talked about the AIPP or being involved with a photography organization in your, your home country, wherever that might be. It's those connections and those ideas that bounce around and they become a part of you, a part of your personality. And that, that to me is the advantage of you know, being a magazine editor and being involved with organizations because you get to bounce ideas, you get inspired. What's, what's the difference between plagiarism and inspiration? Tell plagiarism us. is when you copy the work of one photographer and inspiration is when you copy the work of a thousand. So I consider myself inspired. Inspired. And <laughs> Peter, you work, you work with high-end stuff like Phase 1, Capture 1, Adobe Lightroom and all of that. And, and you're testing something that's got uh, a lot of megapixels. Just tell <laughs> us a little bit about all that stuff. Uh, I, well, again, you, um, I suppose... Over the years, um, I, I've, I guess it started back in the days of film where I shot with large format cameras. So four by five and eight by 10 cameras. And depending on our, uh, our listenership, who's reading, you know, some people will know what an eight by 10 view camera is, others won't. And you know, suffice to say, the sheet of film was eight inches by 10 inches. They possibly don't know what inches are, 20 by 25 centimeters. <laughs> and so it was a big camera. And when you went out in the field with this to take a landscape, you needed a, you know, needed two um, you know, Pantechnica trucks to basically get the gear. And I used to dream, wouldn't it be fantastic fantastic to have this eight by 10 quality, but in a small camera like a, an SLR, it wasn't a DSLR, mm -hmm. it was just an SLR in those days. So I've always, and as being a magazine editor, I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always seeing the latest and greatest. And so um, over the years, I've watched medium format. Now, Sinar had a medium format back, which was you know, 20 megapixels back in the day and $50,000. And I thought, God, I, I can't afford 50 grand. I'm never, you know, because then you've got to buy the camera and the lenses and all that sort of stuff. Um, but um, Bruce Pottinger at LMP and uh, Bernie will know, he lent me a phase one camera, which had 37 megapixels at the time. Um, it was on a horseman back with a 24 millimeter Schneider lens. And he said, just take that to America with you and for a couple of weeks and see what you think. Well, I came back and I was absolutely hooked. And so uh, I, purchased a, a phase one camera and yes it probably cost me more than fifty thousand dollars when i look back on it and then i was also put in touch with phase and um at that stage they had uh need of help for some marketing so i worked on uh, capture one software with them and i have also been given pre-production models of various cameras where they just want to get get feedback and the reason i put down there as an example is um i took a the 100 megapixel back um, it was the first one allowed out of the factory and I took it down to Antarctica on a voyage. So we were gone for about, about a month in total. And uh, I had a couple of these phase one backs in a backpack and uh, I did a little bit of video. We had a, one of those little 360 degree cameras out of which they had they were just coming out. And I, I, had, I had this in my hand and I was sliding down a snow slope on South Georgia Island in the middle of nowhere with $200,000 worth of camera gear on my backpack going ah! <laughs> down, down the hill. Now, if you do a search for, uh, what did I call it? Um, uh, Peter Eastway reviews phase one's latest XF 100 megapixel. And that's on YouTube. And uh, everyone can have a little look of that. My, uh, my delights of sliding down a ski slope. So, I mean, they're, they're little, little uh, memories like that, which I think are, are a lot of fun. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, uh, just working in the cold. Um, I've done some work up in the Canadian Arctic. And I was just telling Bernie just before we uh, connected up here today. Uh, I've working in the minus 50 degree temperatures. Like you literally, your, your hands are, as soon as you take your hands out, uh, your, your, your tips are, you can't feel them anymore. How do you, how do you cope with some of that stuff that when you're working out in the ice and the cold? I mean, I understand that you, you try to pick your time, the best times available, but sometimes your best images are the ones that are in the harsh conditions um, that you face. So, so tell us uh, some of those stories or some of uh, the images that you made that are very, very memorable to you. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it's not that hard, Hark. I mean, I think you have it harder because you're in Canada. Now, <laughs> I, 
coldest I've been in, I reckon, was minus 42 in Canada in Blue River, where I was doing a shoot for a heli skiing. I was doing some work for a magazine and we were going heli skiing and we got taken up and it was a little bit on the cold side, minus 42 degrees. And I can remember that my last run down was very uncomfortable because it was so cold, the plastic in my ski boots split. And so I was literally skiing down with no backs on those ski boots to get that you know, through in the powder because that's what it's all about. So that that to me was probably my hardest shoot. It was also in the days of film. And if you rolled, wound the film on too quickly, it just snapped. And that was the end of that. So I think digital is a lot easier than film. Um, wow. And when you're on in Antarctica, we're not going inland. We're near the coast. And near the coast, it's still, there can be a lot of ice around, but there's still water. And so the temperatures are not normally that cold. They're, you know, the air temperature, I'm guessing, is probably minus 5, minus 10. The wind chill might take it up to minus 15. But I normally consider my trips to Antarctica a lot warmer than when I go to uh, the Alps in Europe skiing or something like that. Or certainly if I go to you know, Lake Louise or whatever in uh, Canada, it's bloody freezing up there halfway through the winter. I, I think it's much colder inland than it is by the coast. So when we're doing the Arctic and the Antarctic, we're on a ship. And so, you know, you know inside the ship, I'm walking around in a T-shirt. If I see something outside, I can survive for between five and 15 minutes, depending how good it is with my T-shirt and my thongs on. But if it's going, if I have to stay out longer than that, then I go and put on my jacket and put, you know, you can see, well, you can't see, I, I'm, I'm follically challenged. So a beanie is a very important part of my attire when I'm down south. Well, I can uh, attest to that because uh, my biggest fear working in those temperatures is the the equipment, making sure that everything works fine. Because I remember going out, uh, <clears throat> I was working for one of the mines, going up the, the hill, it, it's quite a bit of an elevation difference. So when we're at the ground level, the weather seemed okay. It wasn't that cold. It was typical minus 20, minus 30 degree weather. We drive up all the way up to the top of the mountain where everything was being mined, where we were going to actually photograph, get out of the truck, and it's windy, and it's cold, and it's minus 50. I take my Canon 1DX out, the first click, and the the mirror mechanism, it just froze. Like, it, it was not doing anything, yeah. and I'm panicking. Thankful for me, I, I have I always take three or four different bodies, knowing full well that's what you're going to encounter. So, have you ever had a camera equipment failures at at, at one of these uh, locations where you thought, oh shoot, it's 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 <laughs> what am yeah. I going to do now? Yeah, I I I've had a um, I, I I I'm like you. I always take multiple cameras so that if something happens, I've got I've got an out. Um, Talking to Mark Watson, a friend of mine in Australia, he does a, a lot of um, adventure photography, and he did a, a walk. It wasn't Baffin Island, but it was an island up in Canada or somewhere towards Russia, and it was like a two-day jaunt, and he said it averaged um, between minus 20 and minus 40 for the trip, and he said that his cameras, and he, used, uh, he uses Nikons, he's a Nikon ambassador or something like that, um, he said he, down to minus 28 Celsius, it was okay. He didn't seem to have much trouble. But once it got beyond that, he said the electronics started to sort of, you know, like the camera still works, but it works in spurts because I guess of the power or whatever. And the batteries, you know, you need to, you know, the, the batteries go cold a lot very, very quickly. So you need to swap them in and out of your jacket, et cetera. So you rewarm them up. Um, and I've had a shutter um, uh, die on me, uh, um, but that's probably the only problem I've had. So a lot of people say, what care do I need to take with my gear? And, you know, what about condensation and stuff like that? Well, I find that when I'm working on a ship, uh, condensation doesn't normally happen when I go out. It's normally when I bring my camera gear back in. So that's not a, not a big problem. The biggest challenge doing the Arctic and the Antarctic is when you go ashore. Um, you know, you can jump onto the Zodiacs to go into the beach and, you know, the, the, the water is just mirror smooth. It's just beautiful. But in the in, well, in both locations, the weather can change in half an hour. And I can remember doing that once at um, the Salisbury Plains uh, down in uh, down South Georgia. Uh, and when we went across, it was beautiful. On the way back, um, when we were sitting on the Zodiac, there was a Zodiac about uh, 150 metres ahead of us. And the chop, the waves became so big that they would completely disappear. Even the driver standing up would disappear in the chop. And it was really interesting getting back on board. So 
having a wet bag, uh, or sorry, having a dry bag, meant that all my gear was, and I sealed it in, so as the waves were breaking over the uh, Zodiac and everything was just getting trashed, I felt quite comfortable that as long as I didn't drop the camera bag and lose it overboard, it would be okay once I got it back in. So being being aware of what can happen certainly is an, uh, an important part of shooting in the, at either of the poles. Especially when you're carrying 200,000 worth of gear in your back, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> I normally it's only a hundred or so because I've only got the one back. <laughs> hey, Peter. When, when, when I go down though, I, 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 you know, I've only got one phase one back because they, they're not, not uh, inexpensive, but I would always take down a, a Canon or a Fuji outfit as well. Um, one of the problems shooting with medium format is I don't have a lot of long telephoto lenses and I like using telephoto. So I would shoot with the Fuji or the Canon and that would give me the length and the, the, the angle. Of course, you can always crop the, the phase image and that, that works as well, but uh, yeah. And I, I'm just looking at the list of uh, the, the uh, countries here, Peter, South America, Atacama, is that the way you pronounce it? Is that Atacama, somewhere? yeah. And Patagonia and Easter Island and for Qantas, you took photographs there for the Qantas magazines. But uh, the job you did with uh, Abraham Joffa. Yeah, um, Abraham Joffa, yeah. What did, that in, what did that involve? So, so that was, um, a Abraham was, uh, he's a Canon ambassador in the video and he's got a very successful wedding video business in um, Sydney. And he always had this dream of being a documentary wildlife photographer and working with Canon. I don't know how it came about, but I know that he obviously was talking with Canon marketing and he convinced them to let him do a series of um, movies about working photographers. Um, and uh, they, it, it's called Tales by Light uh, as in T-A-L-E-S. And you can see it on Netflix. It's currently oh, still it. on, yep. on Netflix. So Tales by Light. And I was part of the first series of six episodes and then he's done two other series um, since and so uh, Art Wolf was one of the photographers on there and he had a couple of episodes and, and and I was one of the episodes as well and Abraham basically turned up to me and he said look um, if you could go anywhere in the world and we'll pay you to go there's a budget we're going to give you some money you can go anywhere in the world and all we need, want to do is just tag along and just watch how you take photos um, would you be interested and where would you like to go? And I said, oh, I know that sounds like a pretty crap job. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I'll talk to my agent and see if I uh, can get back to you. Um, so we ended up in Antarctica and um, it, we, it was a three week voyage down there and very, very entertaining. Um, interesting to watch how Abraham worked. Um, we, you know, it's a matter of putting different angles on things and, um, I, I get into trouble with some people when um, they see my nature photography because I'm so well known for using Photoshop in terms of post-production. My, my, my view is that I'm more of a Hollywood photographer than a documentary photographer. I want my images to, to sing, to have emotion, to have mood. And so sometimes when you talk to the, the, the diehard nature photographers, they believe that when you take the photo with the camera, you shouldn't touch what the camera has done because once you touch it, it's no longer natural. Well, we can go into a lot of debate about why that's a load of crap, but the, the point is that they don't like you changing things, and I get it. That, that's, that's true. But you do say, Peter, that you, you uh, uh, photographs are in two parts. There's two parts to an image, right? There, the, for me, the there capture. always is, yeah. and there always has been. You know, when we're in the darkroom, there's capture and post-production. And the post-production, it's, it's not Everybody should do post-production, but it, it's not a matter of saying everybody should do it. A lot of people mis misunderstand that as saying, oh, I've got to do a lot of post-production. No, you don't have to do a lot. You might only have to do some minor adjustments, and that will be much better than what the camera has produced for you. Mm -hmm. I forget where I was starting on this, but because you've, you've got me onto one of my soapboxes now. <laughs> well, uh, we can just continue the journey with you walking with the penguins. Oh, the pe <laughs> So, well, I, Abraham had us... Um, when you're down in Antarctica, you're not to, not allowed to approach the wildlife. Um, you're not allowed, depending on the wildlife, there are different rules, but a basic rule is that you're not allowed to go within five metres of, say, the penguins. And so we're walking along this beach at uh, Brown's Bluff from memory, and there, there were some penguins on shore, but not a lot. And we walked out, and then we spent an hour or so shooting a little bit. And then on the way back, it was sort of the sun had gone down a little bit later in the day and there were, and I'm not, not, not kidding you, there weren't thousands, there weren't tens of thousands, there were hundreds of thousands of Gentoo penguins, Gentoo's, wait, I don't know, they're dailies, daily penguins coming back onto shore. 
And as we're walking through, you know, you couldn't take a step without stepping over a penguin. And so Abraham's shooting me as I'm walking around all through these penguins, the long tail of photo lens. The footage is absolutely fantastic, but we cut it. We didn't put it into the um, series because we would have all of these people say, oh, you're within five metres of the penguin. Well, well, I'd still be bloody there if I didn't walk back. You know what I mean? There so <laughs> there. It was unbelievable, but just a fantastic experience uh, there. He does have a little bit of footage, I've got to say, where I'm there with my camera and he's shooting <laughs> the tripod and a penguin just jumps out of the water and the ice right next to the tripod, runs through the tripod legs and out of camera. And I think it's just a, a wonderful bit of footage. A lot, oh, a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. I, I was going to say, walking through all those uh, penguins, it's one challenge. Uh, give us a little bit of an insight to our, our, our listeners the smell and the... <laughs> well, you good, good news for you being in Canada is that you don't have penguins up north. You got polar bears. That's a different problem. We don't have polar bears down south. But when you uh, approach Antarctica, you know, almost before you can see you know, you, you, when you're coming down the ship, you're normally going through some Ant, uh, Antarctic islands first. And almost before you can see them, you can smell the penguin poo. And I, I one of my first trips. I was at St. Andrews on South Georgia. South Georgia isn't Antarctica, but it's a, an Antarctic island uh, up to, well, it's obviously north of Antarctica. Everywhere is. Anyway, I was walking along St. Andrews and I had my tripod in one hand and uh, my other hand was free, backpack on, camera gear, and I slipped. Now, when you're on, Ant uh, on South Georgia, they say, don't worry about where you walk. There is no mud. There is no mud on South Georgia, but when you are squelching, they give you um, Wellington boots to walk in. When you're squelching through this brown gooey stuff, if it's not mud, what the hell is it? <laughs> anyway, I fell over on my back and my hand, left hand was in this mud and my right hand with the tripod was in. And so I got myself up and I'm dripping with it. And as I use my left hand to wipe the mud off my right hand, I'm adding more mud on than I'm getting off. And this, uh, this, this, this lady who was um, one of the passengers walked by, she said, oh, you're in a bit of a problem. Yeah, I've got a couple of tissues. Would you like them? I said, oh, that'd be great. She said, no trouble, $50 each. <laughs> 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 she didn't charge me, but it was yeah. a great joke. So yeah, it, so that, yeah. And uh, so again, uh, on another voyage uh, with, with, with the voyage with Abraham, um, one of the, well, uh, it would have been, um, one of the, the cameramen had put his camera bag down. I won't say his name, so it might embarrass him. <laughs> but he put it down in some guano of some description and he brought it back into the cabin. And, uh, oh, man, the cabin stank for a couple of days before we could get rid of it. So, um, yes, it is a beautiful, pristine environment that we're going into. But there are other colours. <laughs> this is exactly why I wanted to sort of uh, highlight that because most people uh, think about all these exotic uh, locations that you travel to and the beautiful locations and it's all pristine. I just wanted to make sure that uh, our wonderful photographer that travels uh, do, to these do, locations. Do you, you, don't, you don't notice it after the You give a little bit of a reality. And, and it, it is so amazing there. I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I got was um, put your camera down for an hour and just sit and look and listen and just to do that and to have those experiences I, I it's it's good advice i mean i always have a camera in front of me and i find it very hard to do that but on occasion and having been there many times now often i will just sit down and just listen to the nothingness you know and it's just a it, it is a fantastic experience so if you can afford the dollars for the voyage go for it so uh, one of the pleasures you have, Peter, besides traveling is quite often you're going there with your mates and one of your good mates is David Oliver. And I'm sure you've had many experiences with David, David who is also a, a fantastic... I, I was um, you know, wondering whether I could read out a little story sure. um, that I have here. And it's, it's in my, uh, my book, I, um, for those who are interested, if they like my sense of humor, I have a book called The New Tradition. And it's um, a couple of hundred pages and it's, uh, it, it has a hundred of my photographs and then a story with each photo. And some of the stories are a technique. Um, some of them are about the shoot, some about post-production. Some of them are just stories. And the story that I'd like to read to the listeners, if that's okay with you guys, sure. absolutely, is uh, it, you know, Ken Duncan started it with David Oliver, Bruce Pottinger, Kevin Cooper, and the then Hamilton Island Hotel's general manager, Kieran Handy. 
Somehow Ken gave the gig away and I was invited to join the Hamilton Island Photography Workshop for around 10 years. And Hamilton Island is up in the tropics of uh, Australia uh, and it's just one of these wonderful holiday destinations to go to. So for, in each year we would go up for four days based on the island with excursions out to Whitehaven and helicopter rides out to the Great Barrier Reef. So David Bruce and I, along with our families, had a lot of fun. And the following story about David is from 2013. Now, the story starts, Michelangelo, not his real name, was awash. It lasted just a second, but the experience left him wet, damp, and slightly uncomfortable. How did this happen? And what does it have to do with L. McPherson and a turbocharged Dyson hand dryer? Read on and all will be explained. It's an early Tuesday morning and photographers from the away Hamilton Island Photography Workshop are boarding their boats for a trip to the magical Whitsunday Island. Each vessel comfortably seats around 20 people and on a normal morning, and on a normal morning it would take 30 minutes to reach Whitehaven Beach, home of the whitest sand in the world. However, this was no normal morning. There was a strong southerly blowing and a heavy swell out to sea. So the only access to Whitehaven Beach would be the long way around the back of the island. Even then, the last stretch down to Whitehaven Beach might be too rough for the boats, but the only way to find out was to go and see. Nearly an hour later, the radio crackled. The captain of the second boat announced he was turning back because he felt the short swell waves were too rough. But the captain of the lead boat replied he would continue on a little further, a little further. His reply, however, was cut short as a large green wave crested and broke on the bows and, and broke on the boat's bow, swamping the crew and passengers, a wall of water pushing the length of the deck, soaking everything in its wake. Okay, so this is a slight exaggeration, but, the, but for Michelangelo up the front of the vessel, it did wet his pants and his Elmick Furson underpants. <laughs> Michelangelo has a problem with damp underpants. It's unclear whether this was due to a missed career in marine biology or a traumatic childhood experience, but he spent the rest of the trip in silent discomfort. He longed to be like the rest of the passengers, dry, happy, and carefree, enjoying their photography and the remarkable Whit Sundays. But all he could think about was changing his underpants. A couple of hours later, the photography group returned to the architect-designed Hamilton Island Yacht Club and was invited to rest in the exclusive members' library at the top of the stairs. When we arrived, a lone yachtsman was sitting in a low chair, looking out over his iPad at the expansive view up the coast. Unfortunately for him, his sanctuary was about to be disturbed. The photography group filed in and opened their lunches. Michelangelo quietly retired to the men's bathroom. Now I'm surmising what happened next as I wasn't there. However, after exercising correct hand hygiene, it struck Michelangelo that the powerful Dyson dryer could be used for something else. Michelangelo quickly slipped out of his trousers and El McPherson underpants, then holding the underpants vertically, dipped them in and out of the Dyson hand dryer. So far so good, but unfortunately for Michelangelo, the lone yachtsman from the library entered the bathroom. One wonders what he thought when he saw Michelangelo standing half naked next to the dryer. One could say it was a grandmaster exposed. David Oliver, of course, is a grandmaster of photography. But there we go. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. Yeah. So you can choose whether to read the whole lot or cut that, can't you? That's the beauty <laughs> of doing a podcast. You still have the edit. It's not we, live. We don't cut anything, Peter. We're uh, <laughs> X-rated, X we are. 18 plus. Um, Peter, just to finish off, um, we know you've got a million stories over a very, very long uh, career and, and many um, really amazing, amazing years. Um, just give us an overview when digital started. How, how did you feel about that? I mean, you started with 10 by 8 inch film, 20, 20 by 25 centimeter film sheets, and then suddenly you're using smaller cameras and it's all digitized. What, what, what change did that make to you and the industry? Well, it, we, we were always comparing digital with film. And in the beginning, digital didn't cut it. Digital was crap. I mean, the first camera from uh, Kodak, again, another $50,000, I think it was again. And it was a 
0.75 megapixel or something like that. It was very, very small. And so they were trying to sell it before it was ready. And it's a little bit like video. Um, you know, Super 8 film died before video was really in a position to replace it. And so you know, we were, I guess, careful. But I was also a photography magazine editor. And the, you know, to be a part of that was fantastic. Um, I, you know, I, you know, I, I have been quite involved with a few of the camera manufacturers and the development. So I, I'm, I'm very positive about it. I think, and I look at it today, and the quality that we're getting today is just so superior to anything we had in film, technically. Um, I think photography today is perhaps a little bit too much the same in that everybody seems to follow the same um, you know, spec sheets and the same techniques, et cetera. And there's a certain similarity that's generate, generated by digital photography. But I think that will fix itself up as time goes on and people experiment and explore a little bit. So I, I'm, I, I, I didn't have a problem with um, digital, but I had a lot of fights on my hand where people didn't want to accept digital. Um, I used to be involved, you know, we talk about surfing. I used to be involved with Surfing World magazine. I was one of the owners and I did a, a shoot up in, um, uh, the, in Sumatra uh, off Indonesia. Uh, we were up there for a couple of weeks shooting, surfing and all that sort of stuff. And I was using a Canon 1DS or it might have been a 1DS Mark II back, back then, I forget. And uh, we also took a film photographer. And the editor and the art director of the magazine, and I mean, you know, the art director was an employee, so to speak, but, oh, we're no good, we don't like digital, we don't like digital. And that was because a lot of photographers who had experimented with digital had sent them files, and they were crap. And they were crap but mine weren't. <laughs> and so they begrudgingly ran some of my photos, but they only went half a page because they said, oh, they won't go any bigger than that. Well, funnily enough, the Surfers Journal is a US publication. They rang up and said, can we have some files? And they ran uh, a 30 page spread and a whole lot of the photos as double page with my beautiful digital files. And so it, it's interesting that, you know, that's just one example of how their, you know, how, yeah, di digital had its, I guess, its teething problems. And I, I get it, um, you know, especially if you're a professional and you've got to deliver a product to your client, you want to make sure that that product is going to you know, be you know, suit for purpose and you don't want to get a bad reputation for doing crap stuff. So we were careful with the introduction of digital, but you know, most of the photographers that I dealt with, they had no trouble with, with it whatsoever. They were you know, gung-ho. Uh, there are always a few, and there seem to be people that I don't associate with so much who are anti-digital, said digital over my dead body. Mind you, David Oliver was one of those photographers once, but well, I guess being a Nikon ambassador these days, he's no longer thinking that way. I hope you're yeah. listening to this, David. Love you. <laughs> I, uh, I know we've got run well over time, but that's great. Uh, there are so many people I know, know or I've spoken to as photographers who have dreamed about being a landscape photographer and, and would be listening to this. And, you know, what a, what a privileged life you've had as, as that landscape type photographer and editorial photographer. Uh, could you do a, a quick uh, sort of summary of an advice of anyone listening to this would who would dream of uh, living the life you have in in the landscape photography world? I I, I suppose that um, if you can do it, give it a go, but have a have a, a fallback position um, because I think that to be a landscape photographer and even a photographer going forwards is certainly very challenging. I think if you're working in the domestic arena, you've got a much better uh, opportunity uh, because people need someone. But in the landscape, everybody's a landscape photographer today. And I see that people who are having the most fun in landscape photographer, uh, photography are often retired bankers, doctors, and accountants who have got enough money to buy the gear, go on those trips and enjoy themselves. And so for landscape photography, I would actually suggest keep it as a passion. In many ways, that's what I've done. The landscape stuff that I do is more of a passion and I'm earning my income from other areas. And so I, you know, I, there are photographers, you know, Christian Fletcher, Ken Duncan, who have definitely made a life out of selling landscape photography. But for every one of them, there are a thousand other photographers who are scratching to make ends meet. So if you want to be a poor landscape photographer, it's easy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great advice to give uh, anybody because uh, all of us well maybe not all of us i certainly started with uh, some sort of a nature slash 
landscape photography when I started picked up the camera and uh, uh, certainly have shifted over the years to something that I actually uh, that I <laughs> hang my hat on and start to pay the bills. So uh, it's a great advice that uh, keep it as a passion and to look for something else to make the money with. Well, Peter, we could sit here and chat with you all night long, but uh, looks like we're coming towards the end of the, uh, the podcast, but this is the segment where we're going to throw you on a hot seat and they're going to get Bernie to ask you uh, rapid fire questions. Uh, so Bernie, I'm going to pass this on to you and let's put uh, Peter in the, in the hot seat. Okay, Peter, we have this little segment just to finish off and uh, there are t- uh, 10 questions that require a one word answer. Um, if you can get through them all with answering just in one word, there is a major prize to be won. Uh, so just keep that in mind as we go through. And the first one is, what's your favorite alcoholic drink? Lemonade. And your favorite city in the world? Dubai. What sport do you play? Tiddlywinks. If you uh, could have dinner with any person, either living or dead, who would it be? Bernie Griffiths. What's your favorite movie? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And your favorite camera that you've ever owned? A Sinar P2. Would you like to relive your life, yes or no? Yes. What's your favorite food? Nachos, bean only. Who would you like to be if you weren't you? Pass. If you hadn't been a photographer, what would you like to have been? Accountant. And what is your motivation to get out of bed every morning? <laughs> Enjoyment of life, isn't it? Oh, right? Damn, you just blew the prize, Peter. <laughs> oh, damn, on the last question. <laughs> oh, no, God. And it was a trip to join us in Texas whenever we can fly at the end of the year to join our group of uh, Inner Circle Coaching members. Oh, you oh, there's always it. next time. <laughs> <laughs> or it's to go and stay with Hawk in Canada for three weeks. That was That's the right. second Come on prize. up, Peter. Texas, Canada, Texas, Canada. I'm not too sure. I haven't got a gun. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll just leave you, Hawk, just to finish off. But thank you, Peter, for your time. I know it's, it's valuable. And uh, um, uh, wow, um, what, a, what a privilege to be talking to you. <laughs> oh, you G'd up, to Bernie. Well done. <laughs> Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. A beautiful um, summary of your career. I've looked at a lot of your work. It just gives me an excuse to go back and explore some of your uh, earlier work. And uh, for our listeners, uh, where would they look at more of your work, whether it's Instagram, online, your website? Can you uh, direct them to where they can see more of your beautiful work? Sure. Um, the website's petereastway.com and you can follow me on um, Instagram as well. It's Peter Eastway. Um, if you're interested in uh, what I do in terms of magazines, courses and stuff like that, it's betterphotography.com. So www.betterphotography, spelt the normal way, .com. And there's a whole lot of resources and information there. Sign up for my almost weekly website and uh, almost weekly newsletter. And uh, you can uh, listen to uh, more of those David Oliver type stories from time to time as well. Thank you very much, uh, Peter. Thanks for joining. Bernie, uh, thanks uh, again for another uh, heckling uh, guest uh, podcast. Yep, right. See you guys. Thank Thank you. you.